Wow, you interrupted my warm-up. I'm sorry. It was too good of a warm-up not to try and share, but I forgot that the music would play. Fair. I was... Um, I was hoping to catch you and you not know that we started. You just like... <laughs> you gotta twirl the lips. And then like once you twirl the lips a few times, you... <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm, I'm gonna go I with... from vocal class. I was going to go with uh, Sally sold seat. No, that's terrible. Sea sold seat. No. S is the worst sound to record on the planet. Oh, it really is. <laughs> Let me throw a bunch of S's out here. She right sells now. seashells by the seashore. There we go. Mm-hmm. I got it. Mm-hmm. How now, brown cow? How now, brown cow? There's an episode of The Nanny. She's pretending to be some like uppity, you know, yeah. type woman or something. And so Fran Drescher has... First of all, the most fantastic voice that I do oh, love. Oh, yeah. But she was trying to, you know, be upper crust or whatever. And so she, a woman walks in. This is terrible. It's a terrible joke now that I'm thinking about it. But a woman walks in and she turns her and goes, how now, brown cow? Like, just like that. It's, yeah. it's a bad, it's not light. Yeah. It's terrible. But I will never hear that phrase without it being Fran right. Drescher saying it in that voice in my head ever again. It is fun. What like weird little trigger phases that you have that just like, I have to think of this now. Mm-hmm. Happened to me a few times yesterday. I can't think of any of them now, but. <laughs> Good story. Yeah, no. <laughs> Crushing it with the storytelling. Yeah, today. I love it. Yeah. It's fantastic. <laughs> You went to the DIA yesterday, though. That's pretty exciting. I did. I did go to the DIA yesterday. Is which, the art still there? The art is still there. Okay. Beforehand, we were talking, though. I guess, like, some Basquiat's got stolen from, like, an art museum. Oh. I thought it was a DIA. We were talking about it, but it's not. I was like, no. I don't think I've ever seen him there. I don't think so, either. Some Warhols, but that's the closest. Yeah. Yeah. I made the reference of, like, so, like, a Thomas Crown Affair type of thing. Have you seen the Thomas Crown Affair? I haven't. I'm vaguely familiar. I watched it like a month or so ago. Yeah. It's, it's like an, there's, it's it's an a, art heist, right? It's an art heist movie. Yeah. And it's like very of the times. It's like mid 90s. Mm-hmm. And like it's Pierce Brosnan playing this rich guy who just likes to take art because he's rich and can get away with it. He mm-hmm. doesn't actually need it, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. It's for the thrill. Right. Rene Russo plays like the sexy investigator woman who's like, I'll use my body to get what I need in this investigation, <laughs> sir. Very 90s plot line right there. Yeah. I'm a woman. I can do it just as good as a man, but I also have this body. <laughs> Look at these boobs. Oh, which reminds me of the best quote from um, Working Girl. It's like, I've got a head for business and a body for sin. <laughs> have you seen Working Girl? Um... A long time ago? Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't, again, couldn't tell you much I watched it, it recently. Oh, that's the only reason mm-hmm. why. Mm-hmm. It's a classic, I feel like, though. Yeah. Whenever I hear Working Girl, I always think of the movie 9 to 5, but then have to, like, switch my brain and be like, no, no, oh, no, yeah. no, no, no. Other legends. Because uh, uh, Bar- it's Barbara Streisand, right? No. no. I, that's Funny Girl, I think. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> Is it that? It's Melanie Griffin and Sigourney Weaver. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Again, couldn't tell you anything yeah. about it clearly. So, yeah. 
Ask me again if I've seen it. I probably should just say no, even though I know I have. It kind of gives similar vibes to Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead of like oh, someone yes. entering the, the fancy corporate world that has the you know, very fish out of water in corporate mm-hmm. America. Okay. Storyline. <laughs> Perfect. Which corporate America is weird. It's very weird. I've had that conversation a lot. Like, and I've never, I, I have not been the one instigating it, but a lot of people yeah talked about that around me lately and i'm like "Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's accurate it is yeah well i think it's also i think there's a large transition maybe happening right now with it so that's a fair statement yeah i would agree with that yeah nobody wants to wear real pants anymore oh absolutely not we're all over real pants yeah especially as it's summer i'm just in like running shorts all summer yeah no i mean it's all about comfort now yeah i think pretty much everything i wear is comfortable yeah i'm trying to think if i have anything <laughs> i mean i probably own things that are not comfortable yeah. do i wear them no because i have other things that are i try and find all these cute comfortable things like i'm trying oh, yeah, not to yeah. be the person who shows up in a snuggie you know no 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 no, no yeah yeah i totally Yes, 100%. Or a Slanket, which is actually like a real brand. I did not know. Interesting. I thought it was just a 30 Rock reference, but then it was like a clue in a crossword puzzle. Oh, interesting. Like wearable blanket brand and Snuggy didn't fit. And then it ended up being Slanket. I wonder if they existed before or after, though. True. Because yeah. that could be a thing. Yeah. Because they did like to make up stuff on that show like quite often. Oh, yeah. Like those, uh, what were the cheese Soledad or something? Yeah. The cheese curl things that yeah. in one episode, Liz Lemonade so many th- that she thought she was pregnant. Yeah. Because <laughs> there was some weird dye in them or something. Yeah, there was like some like Hispanic name of just like not right, wasn't it? Like some kind of Well yeah, yeah. That's why I said like, Solid like, Dad. Yeah. Because that'd be Sun I don't know the rest of it, but it, yeah, it was something like that. And yeah. they had a um random animal mascot or something i don't know i don't know it's been a yeah second. <laughs> yeah i always like think to go back and watch 30 rock mm-hmm. but i like i haven't been wanting to watch rewatch shows lately but i have mm-hmm. recently started murder she wrote yeah last week yeah our, our stage show yeah our stage show last week yeah it was ridiculous and awesome uh it was so much fun to do it Yes, Jess played Jessica Fletcher. I did. And uh, Murder, Life Long Dream, I didn't know I had. <laughs> oh, me neither until I started watching. It's really just such a fun character. It is. I, I mean, I only watched the pilot episode, which not my best move. Uh, I probably should have uh, chosen more wisely because the pilot is never representative of the whole series in something like that, especially because it was 13 seasons long. Oh, yeah. It ran from like 84 to 95. Yeah, it's actually really funny because now I feel like I've done my Murder, She Wrote research. Yep. Actually, wait, here's my theory. Yeah. Jessica Fletcher is actually the the best serial killer to ever exist. Because she's just like... Because here's the thing. Let's let's look at the facts, please. Okay, okay. So Cabot Cove, Maine, where she lives, her small town. Yeah. More murders per capita than anywhere else in the world, right? Right. They even got us beat. (laughs) Yeah. That's a little suspicious. Yeah. Also, when she travels, she just happens to be somewhere that some like horrific murder happens right after she gets there. Sometimes it's before, at least in season two. 
Okay, so sometimes it's before, but I'm just saying. It is suspicious. Where this woman travels. Death follows. Death follows. Yeah. So I'm just saying, is she the best serial killer to ever have existed? If so, I'm totally on board with that. That would make me like the show like even more. And I already love it. It's like the last episode, the twist. Yeah. Like, it was me the whole time. She goes to Cabot Cove into the cave and there's just like a cave full of bodies. And she's like, <laughs> I've gotten away with it. Woo ha ha ha. Yeah. But like um, it's, I had always heard of the show, but didn't really know much about it. Mm-hmm. And just iconic. Angela Lansbury. Amazing. Like, she was like probably like 59 when they started the show. Cause like I looked at that. Well, she was supposed to be retired and yeah. like the character was no, retired. Just, I love that the, there was a character in the 80s of mm-hmm. this woman solving mysteries mm-hmm. and like it's a whole vibe. In season two, episode one, I kind of just bopped around with like watching episodes, but mm-hmm. like she goes undercover and undercover for her is just a turban and a brooch. And I love that approach. <laughs> I just enjoy how crafty Jessica Fletcher is yeah. um, and how wonderfully portrayed she is by Angela oh, Lansbury. Yeah. So I remembered that it existed and that my mom watched it sometimes. Like that was me being the resident expert when yeah. we put the show together. But I remember it fondly, but could not have told you anything without reading the Wikipedia page yeah. about it. But I am glad that it's back on my radar and in my life because it will be a go-to from now on. Yeah, it's not really gonna, just like a fun, easy yeah. watch just to like throw on and like, mm-hmm. ooh, a little mystery. And you don't need, you can watch any of the episodes. You don't have to go in order. Oh, yeah. You don't really need and context. there's so many ridiculous plots. Mm-hmm. Like I watched the, the first one was ridiculous even. Yeah. I watched one where she inherits half a football team. <laughs> half a football team? Half a football team. Who got the other half? And like, Caitlyn Jenner, before she transitions, played the quarterback for the team. And that's weird okay. to see. That is odd. I forgot that they were they, they a did performer. Random, like, yeah, they <laughs> like did that, random like, things you know what like mean? that. Yeah. yeah, interesting. I'm excited. I like it. It's always nice just to have TV shows like this where it's like, oh, I don't really know what I want to do or just like throw something up. Mm-hmm. That is like, that works. It's perfect for that. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. I, again, it will be in my rotation. I'll probably watch an episode here or there. I don't think it's going to be like, this is all I watch for, you know, a week or anything. Yeah. It's hard to binge. Yeah. Cause it's also heavy. Those are some heavy murders. Yeah. So there you go. Heavy murders and occasionally just like real bad acting. Yeah, there's not Angela Lansbury. No, she's always. Yeah, she's great. But like some of the other people in the show. And also. That's what makes it fun, though. Jessica Fletcher gets her flirt on a decent amount, too. And I do enjoy that. Oh, yeah. Or at least in the first episode, she got her flirt on. She definitely is flirty. Mm hmm. After those clips we saw of like her in the bathtub of her saying, I'm a feminine sexual person. Oh, yes. This is for listeners out there. If you have a moment, go to YouTube at some point today. Look up Angela Lansbury bathtub. Yeah. It was part of her like she did like a video. I think that was part exercise, part like lifestyle video of just kind of like there's a clip of her in the bathtub being like, it's so good for relaxing. And then like the sh- like she's like, I put lotion on it. It literally keeps me in touch with my own body. Mm-hmm. And like, it's very much like her just talking about how she stays, how she does. How she's amazing, basically. Yeah. 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 Uh, other than that, 
most of my TV time has been taken up by paranormal shows. Yeah. Because I'm waiting for this new Bigfoot show, which I yeah. believe today is the day that it comes out, Ooh. the day we're recording. Yeah. So I'm very excited. I'm probably going to watch my Bigfoot show tonight and it's going to be amazing, um, you know, with uh, Jack Osborne and Jason Mewes. Yeah. But yeah, other than that, I've been watching a lot of paranormal ones. Although the one I'm watching, I like the ones when they also involve a psychic. Uh And this one always has like a psychic kind of overview the space and stuff too, which is always a little bit more interesting to me, especially when some of the stuff aligns. Uh It's very exciting to watch. Yeah. Psychic abilities amaze me. Yeah. They're always so interesting. They're interesting and everybody's are like, Slightly different, which is also very cool because there's all the clear senses. They're very, yeah. uh, you know, like there's uh, clear voyant, clear cognizant, clear uh, audience. I think there's so many different ways that people like experience psychic abilities, and sometimes it's multiple ways, and sometimes yeah. it's like they need to touch an object, yeah, or a wall or a space, and sometimes it's just being somewhere and yeah uh, and on the one show i'm watching right now there they have one of the psychics because he can't travel this is a little bit ago and he couldn't travel for a while and they have him just remotely joining them they just take a video or you know video uh, phone call with him and take him around that way and he still like picks up stuff which i'm like how does that work yeah it's crazy yeah it's just what people are able to do and like come up with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have an update from an episode of a couple weeks ago. Oh yeah. We love an update. Yeah. So I just like managed to see an article. I probably, cause I did research on it. Google was like, Oh, you're interested in this thing, which mm-hmm. I am the Lakeshore global. They're like working on a new facade. So the facade's going to change again. Oh, wow. Which is interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, that area of town, there's like a lot more happening around yeah. there now. And there is a lot of new businesses and things like that. I'll be curious so. if they try and go back towards more what it was originally with mm-hmm. like the terracotta and more like 1910 style, because that's when it was built. Or if they're going to just go even more contemporary. So it's just like really modern on the outside. And then you walk in and it's like the past. Yeah. I kind of feel like. They're probably going to do the modern thing. Probably. It's easier. Yeah. I'll be interested to see what they do, though. But mm-hmm. just, I'm just thinking of other things around there, too. Yeah. Because I don't think it's that far from, like, Tech Town. No. Which is pretty modern. I hope they find a way to marry the two in an interesting way. Because I yeah. think that could be interesting. Yeah. I'd be into that. Yeah. Yeah, that's that was the update. I just okay. saw it and I was like, I'll mention this. No, thank you for sharing that. Oh, we always love an update. Yeah. I'm saying we am your behalf, but yeah. <laughs> and listeners half, I guess. I don't know how that works. Sure. But updates are great. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. if you're ready, we can get on to part two. Let's do it. All right. So this is part two of a three-part series. We're kind of just going through gay history in the state of Michigan or LGBTQ history in the state of Michigan. Mm -hmm. I believe we started in like the mid 1800s in part one. And so now the first event I have for part two is 1934. Okay. So without further ado, Mm -hmm. in 1934, a Detroit physician calls Radcliffe Hall's lesbian novel, The Well of Loneliness, quote, completely faithful. 
I like I went a little deeper in this mm-hmm. just because that is kind of a vague statement. Yeah, and I was kind of like I've heard of the novel before, mm-hmm. The Well of Loneliness, because it is kind of one of the more well-known lesbian novels, and it was kind of like for decades been considered one of the best-known lesbian novels in English. Okay. And there was controversy when it came out because, of course, mm-hmm. the plot is about an upper-class English woman who meets and falls in love with another woman while serving as an ambulance driver in World War. One? Yeah, because this is before World War II. I just have W-I-I, which is just we. <laughs> and so I'm before guessing, the we was invented. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So before the we. I mean, probably, that's accurate. Yeah. It was before the we was invented. Before the we and after <laughs> World War One. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which just, that reminds me, one time I asked my sister, I asked her, when was the nuclear bomb dropped that ended World War II? Mm-hmm. And she said, well, it was before 9-11, <laughs> which is an accurate statement. Yeah, she's but not also, wrong. Damn, girl. <laughs> she could, like, but then she oddly guessed the exact year. She did? Yeah. Oh. So she was accurate in the statement that it was before 9-11, and then uh-huh. she also managed to get, do you know what year it was? 40. Four or five? 45. Okay. Yeah. I was like, I, I, I couldn't remember. Yeah. yeah. I know when World War II was. <laughs> yeah. World War II. World War One. I, I get the dates mixed up. Honestly, I don't know other than like <laughs> before World War II. No, I'm yeah. just kidding. I know like early 1900s. Yeah. 1908? Maybe. No. I don't know I don't either. Know. 1910. <laughs> Sure. I'm just going to say them all. And then when I add it, I'll no, I'm just yeah. do that. We'll fix it if we make any mistakes in another episode. But I believe the plot is in World War One. OK. And it makes the explicit plea, quote, give us also the right to our existence. Mm, OK. Like, which was a big deal at the time because of yeah. all the limitations. And so there was a lot of people hating on this book. James Douglas of the newspaper, The Sunday Express, made it the target of hate articles, one going as far to say, quote, I would rather give a healthy boy or a healthy girl a vial of prussic acid than this novel. No, no, no. Yeah. That is so gross. Yep. So I just thought it was cool that someone in Detroit was like, no, this novel's good in 1934. Yeah, yeah. So I was just like, that's how it's it It's kinda... a much bolder statement than it sounds like now. Yeah. Because knowing what was what going on. The, yeah. yeah. Oh, also one thing that was good about this book is it portrayed homosexuality in like a natural God-given state and not like, mm-hmm. oh, she became gay because she looked at too many Georgia O'Keeffe paintings, yeah. you know? Yeah. Which would be amazing if that happened in that time period. Right. Because now we have it. time travel too. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. It wasn't a. Um... I just had George O'Keefe on the mind. I saw it. I didn't know Detroit had one of her works. It's just like a painting of a cottage. So it's not like one of the flowers. Oh, the yeah. Skulls, I guess I but... didn't know either then. Yeah. Yeah. I was like. It's very interesting because it's George O'Keefe, but it's a site. It was a skyscraper in New York. Oh, interesting. Okay. And like, which you usually don't think George O'Keefe in New York. Well, no, but I mean, all artists, they kind of have time period you know what i mean yeah and no, not for to sure. say and so, sometimes they're not just regulated to one time period they just know for sure have different styles that you know yeah they like to do i fucking picasso oh i know all you know all sorts all of, of styles place. yeah yeah 
I like it because I just managed to find the one phallic Georgia O'Keeffe painting. Well <laughs> so done. It's just a skyscraper. Yeah. Well done. Yep. She needed to balance all those flower vaginas somewhere. Exactly. So moving on with this timeline. In 1937, Detroit police chief orders ban on female impersonator acts in city nightclubs. So mm-hmm. no more drag queens. Mm-hmm. In 1937, it was also the year that Ruth Ellis, callback, moved mm-hmm. to the city and began hosting her lesbian and gay house parties. Wonderful. So again, providing that nice safe space for people to come hang out. Yeah. If you haven't heard that episode and you're enjoying this one, go check out the oh, for sure. episode. Yeah, that was very yeah. well done and fun. Yeah. Uh, 1939, Michigan enacts criminal sexual psychopath law. What? (laughs) Which basically allowed them to institutionalize people who were considered sexual psychopaths, meaning that if you were caught engaging in sodomy, you could now get institutionalized. Oh, no. Wasn't repealed until 1966. It's wild. How many things changed in the 60s? You know, those hippies, they did some good stuff because they did. There is a you hear a lot of these things that you think ended in like the 20s or 30s. You know, you think yeah. back, you're like, oh, they weren't doing that still. And it's always like the 60s when it ended. It's crazy. Good on you, hippies. Yeah. Uh, I, I won't get into that. I was going to talk about Supreme Court stuff, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Right now, I have some feelings about the Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, well, I've numbed myself to some of it because I'm not. Yeah. I it just it's hard to fully process it mm-hmm. without rage right now. Yep. So also in 1939, Michigan outlaws gross indecency between females. So they're having the same fun time as gay men. Okay. But this yeah. didn't stop them from opening a bar. The Sweetheart Bar opens in Detroit on 3rd Avenue and is the earliest known lesbian bar. So oh. Detroit's first lesbian bar is 1939. Nice. Which also I was watching another, I think it was that book of queer series. Mm-hmm. And there's like only like 15 or 20 lesbian bars in the whole country now. Really? Yeah. They're just like way less prevalent than... I'm wondering too, because I know too, like tradition, not traditionally, but historically speaking, uh, oftentimes there would be kind of like bars that didn't advertise necessarily, but they wore and it was kind of like, here's a safe space to go. Yeah. Kind of a thing. I'm honestly, this is such a bad reference when I'm thinking of the show Ratchet. Never seen it. Uh, it's Ryan Murphy and it's. One, it's the Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's oh, Nest. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. There's a character who takes her to basically to a lesbian bar, but it's more like underground, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. A like place to go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Kind of a deal. And I'm wondering if that was, there were many undocumented. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I'm wondering if there were many undocumented. Oh, probably. And also, like, the need to have like the underground version. Yeah. Is not what it was before, you know? Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, I definitely, because I think like gay bars are taking kind of a hit in the same way. It's just, they're still more prevalent. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm I'm curious about it. And I don't want to like be like. Yeah. Gay men go to bars more than lesbian women. (laughs) It's like, that's, you know what I mean? Like there's no reason like that. It's. 
There's a lot of correlations, but probably not a lot of causations. Or it's hard to like find that line if there is a connection. Yeah, yeah. But that is interesting. 15 is not a yeah. lot. For the whole country, which is like crazy. It's wild. Yeah. But yeah, so Detroit had one in 1939. 1940, Bert Chapman begins a 31-year stay in a state men- mental hospital for alleged homosexual offense. Ugh. So... Not like alleged homosexual offense. 31 years in the institution. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So 1947, Bramwell Chichi Franklin begins his gay comedy career at Uncle Tom's Plantation on 8 Mile near Livernois. What a name. Right. Chichi, 17 at the time, began performing in the club's drag review. So he then moved on to a bar called the Rosas because they accepted his fake ID as he was still underage at the time. Mm-hmm. Once he did become of age, he started performing at the Rio Grande, which later became known as the 1011. These are all like gay bars. Yeah. Or like drag clubs. Mm-hmm. Uh, on top of entertaining the gay community and tourists, uh, there is, this was also the age of raids. So mm-hmm. bars getting raided by police and like harassing customers. So, in the 50s and 60s, Chi-Chi would raise the alert if there was an undercover vice and like kind of helping make gay spaces just a little bit safer. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, the last per- performance as Chi-Chi was at the Town Pump in the late 70s. Oh, wow. I love all these names, too, by the way. Yeah. Wait, is, but this is that in Detroit? Yeah. This yeah. is all Detroit. So Town Pump is still there. Is it? Yeah. Town oh, Pump Tavern. I love that. Mm-hmm. Although I might have changed... Owners, or I don't know, but yeah, Tom Pump Tavern. Yeah, but mm-hmm. uh, so after he kind of retired from drag, he opened the Little Reed Bookstore in on the Wayne Campus neighborhood, and that kind of became like a community center of sorts for the LGBT community. How oh, cool! Uh, and then he passed away in 1995. Okay, so it is nice because there's a lot of like, these smaller, like notable individuals in the area yeah. that like you wouldn't have heard about otherwise yeah which is a nice break from our next one kind of thing or 1948 new state regulation is enacted that prohibits bars from becoming a rendezvous or hangout for homosexuals Ugh. like basically you can't have any public space for it anymore yeah wait what year is this again 48 okay 1950 Liz Le- lesbian Liz Lemon yes in 1950 19 Visdy. 1950, lesbian Melva Earhart acquires the State Bar in Flint on Union Street. Okay. And the State Bar is interesting because I found some more information on it. It was a mixed bar that had both like a straight and homosexual clientele. And they had like a system where the host or wait staff would seat those they perceived as straight at the bar while the gay kids were seated at the table. Oh, so kind of like okay. how they managed to keep it like they had like a system to yeah. kind of keep it like, I guess, under suspicion or something or mm-hmm. keep the suspicion down. Well, and also to like prevent a raid or yeah, yeah. like, yeah. So I just like they had a little system. Yeah. I wonder if they ever got it wrong. <laughs> yeah, I wonder that too. I was like, kind of like also like, ooh, how I wonder do you just how- tell from like a two set? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I'm sure probably if like gay people were going there knowing it was a gay kind of whatever, they would maybe wear symbols or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do something extra to communicate. Yeah. Uh, So in 1950, U.S. representative for the 4th Congressional District of Michigan puts the government on blast for employment of homosexuals. 
So, so far we have on the books, you can't fuck, you can't be at a bar, now you can't have a job. Great. Yep. I guess it didn't prohibit people from holding a job, but he was just kind of like being a dick about the government employing homosexuals. Yeah. Uh, 1952, a new state law is brought about to provide prison sentences of one day to life for repeat sex offenders. Uh, Which, if you're an actual sex offender, yeah, it, that's not. A, <laughs> but that's it's just the, at this point, sex offender is defined much it, differently. Yeah. Than today. Yeah. Uh, night. Oh, this is a crazy one. Uh oh. Uh oh. Uh -oh. 1956, <laughs> Prophet uh -huh. Jones, a flamboyant cult leader in Detroit, is arrested in his home on morals charges. Okay. So let's figure out who Prophet Jones yes, is. Yes, please. Yes, please. Yes. So, okay. So Reverend James Francis Prophet Jones was born in Birmingham, Alabama in 1907. He got his title of prophet at the age of two when he told his mother, quote, Papa come home bloody. Before his father, who had gotten in a fight at work that day, came home bloody. Bloody. Mm -hmm. At age 11, he was like, Kids I say the darndest things. Right. At age 11, he was like, I definitely have mystical powers and I don't need school anymore, so I'm going to drop out. What an excuse. Right. He then got involved with a Pentecostal sect known as Triumph the Church and Kingdom of God in Christ. Did they just like throw a bunch of words in a hat and yeah. pull them out for that one? Because I feel like they were just like all the religious words. Triumph the Church sounds like a Christian rapper name and I hate it. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, it's just like <laughs> a lot of like weird word combinations. Yeah. So became a part of the sect and at age 21, he moved to Detroit as an ordained missionary, but started his own sect after a few years. Okay. He, uh, he now had the title of Dominion Ruler of the Church of the Universal Triumph, the Dominion of God Incorporated. What is with these lengthy titles? I have no idea. But That's far too many words. Maybe he just like was like, if it takes them a long enough time to say it, they'll kind of forget that it's yeah. made up and done yet. Yeah. But he claimed that at 1 a.m. on September 28th, 1944, mm -hmm. the Almighty had come to him and told him that he was being granted special powers. Soon after, he opened up his first thankful center, which is what he called churches in his new sect. So, opened his first thankful center. <sighs> So the first one was a nondescript building on the Lower East Side of the city. His target demographic in the city was poorly educated Southern blacks that had just moved to the city. And there were slightly more women than men in the congregation, and about 10% of the congregation was white. So just like an interesting mix of people, too. Mm -hmm. It sounds like he was kind of looking for... Like... To, to manipulate. Yeah. The, definitely kind of preying on a vulnerable population. Thank you. That's exactly what I meant to say. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, nope. We got there together. I don't have words. It's, I get it. Yeah. So his new sect, he's like, we got to have rules. Mm -hmm. So he issued 50 decrees, which if followed strictly, his followers known as Dominionites would stay alive to the year 2000. The mm. year he predicted heaven would come to earth, thus making all beings immortal. Sir, you were wrong. Yeah. Spoiler alert. It got worse. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get into some of these decrees. So among oh, okay. them, banned things were tobacco, alcohol, coffee, and tea. Okay. Can't do any of those. But then also tea? things. 
Yeah. Not even like all tea? Yeah, no tobacco, no alcohol, no coffee, no tea. So it wasn't like the caffeine. It was just tea. That's. Yeah. Just wait. Other things that were banned. Checkers, poker and other games. Uh, You're not allowed to socialize with anyone who is not a Dominionite. Oh, and no babies out of wedlock and all marriages must be approved by the prophet. And also, like, there were some strange ones that were like, girdles are mandatory. And there is a proper application of nail polish. No. A proper application of nail polish as decreed by the Almighty, apparently. I wouldn't understand, but it would make more sense if nail polish itself was out. You know, yeah. no nail polish would make more sense than proper. App- That's so disgusting. Right? That's so like micro level. Yeah. Oh. Girl, just we got more story in this. So the inner circle were, of the sect were given royal titles such as prince or lord. Oh no, no, no. Yeah. And no. some of them would even come to live in Jones's home with him, which he called the castle. And castle it was because it was a French chateau style mansion in the Boston Edison neighborhood that had 54 rooms. Oh my gosh. Including a barbershop ballroom and a perfume room. Do we know if it's still there, like this building? Uh, I do not. Okay. Uh, I don't I'm know just, if I had an address I could find, but okay. I'll go back and look through again. I mean, no, I just... But no, I'm curious now. Yeah. So Jones had kind of become a celebrity at this point. Mm-hmm. He was considered one of the top black preachers of the time, along with Father Divine and Sweet Daddy Grace. He had a Those week- are great names. Those right? are much better than his name. Right? I love Sweet Daddy Grace. That's yeah. fantastic. And Father Divine's fun too, but Sweet yeah. Daddy Grace, you can't beat that. Yeah. But Prophet Jones had his weekly radio broadcast on CKLW. He was even invited to Dwight D. Eisenhower's inauguration. Oh. And he was one of the few prominent black figures to show up in mainstream white publications. Okay. And you're probably wondering, where is he getting all this money? I'm assuming the people of his... Oh, yeah. Not church. What was it? Gath- f- thankful... Thankful centers. Centers, yes. Yeah. Uh, one odd source of income that he had was he would buy like mini salt and pepper shakers for like a couple of pennies, then bless them and sell them for a couple of dollars. No. He was also selling pictures of Christ on the cross as good luck charms for an illegal lottery that was happening in the city at the time. Oh. And of course, he would just ask his followers for cash mm-hmm. and basically started offering blessing for cash and would shake down his followers at the end of service sometimes even going as far as locking the congregation in until he had collected a satisfactory amount. <gasps> like, you basically start, start, like, high and, like, if anyone can afford $50, give 50 Like, if you can't afford that, maybe you can afford 20 and just kind of, like, going lower and lower, but surely you can afford $5 until he no. got enough. Yeah. No. Yeah. By <sighs> 1955, Jones had expanded a lot. He had 425 thankful centers around the country with a membership of over 6 million. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Detroit was still the largest. How have we, how is, because he was a black gay man. But how have I never, yeah. That is wild. Yeah. That that is a huge cult. Yeah. Yeah. That's not just some like, yeah, rinky dinky little cult. Like all around the country. And in that. Detroit was still the largest, though. 
I wonder like if it was easier or harder actually to have it like more spread out like that yeah. than without the communications probably, that we have now. Uh, yeah, I probably imagine it was probably easier then because you kind of just like word of mouth. People are like, well, that sounds fun. I'll go. Yeah. Yeah. So what went wrong? Why? I don't know, but I'm excited to find out. Yeah. So Jones often stated that he had taken a vow of celibacy and was unmarried. Many thought this was a cover-up for the fact that he was gay. Mm -hmm. He was very theatrical and usually partaking in over-the-top opulence that brought comparisons to Liberace. Okay. And he wasn't trying very hard to cover up his actions. For example, there was a room set aside at the mansion for a late aide to the prophet with whom Jones said they had enjoyed a, quote, holy union. Hmm. In 1953, one of Jones's live-in valets was caught by an undercover cop in a downtown men's room. He was put on probation and had to move out of the castle. Okay. Let me also try that one again because it's valet, not valet. Oh. <laughs> in 1953, one of Jones's live-in valets was caught by an undercover cop in a downtown men's room. He was put on probation and had to move out of the castle. Oh. But the straw that broke the prophet's gig was when in 1955, an attractive army vet by the name of John A. Henry began visiting the prophet to help with his ailing back. Mm -hmm. Once alone, Jones asked Henry to disrobe, and when he did, he made an indecent proposal. This was a big mistake, huge, because Henry was actually a member of the Vice Bureau. Oh. So things got even worse when they came to arrest Jones and found him in bed with two teenage boys he was claiming to give singing lessons to. Because that's the best response you can give when you're caught in bed with two teenagers. Uh, singing lessons. Yeah. In bed. Mm-hmm. Sure. There's so... This is... Crazy, right? There's... Yes. So he went to trial in July of 1956, where after a week of testimony, the jury took about an hour and a half to come up with a not guilty verdict. Really? Which is, I guess, great for Jones, but the damage to his reputation and bank account had already been done. Okay. He had to sell his mansion to Sweet Daddy Grace and decided to go on a, quote, soul-saving tour to try and recoup some of his losses. Mm -hmm. It didn't go great uh, because once, even in St. Louis, he got stranded from being too broke to travel. Oh, wow. Jones would continue preaching until his death at the age of 63 in 1971. Wow. Bonkers. Yeah. I get I can't believe I've never yeah. heard his name at least before. You know, something. Yeah. yeah. And it's crazy. And like that's again another reason why I'm like loving this timeline because I just found so many weird, interesting things like this that I had would have had no idea of otherwise. Yeah. Well, and I mean, like you're really kind of putting a spotlight on the fact that like there is a lot of history lost. Yeah. Or not lost because. Not taught, not kind of. Not part of the greater timeline. Of yeah. Things. Yeah. There, even even when you're looking at things like cults and crimes and things like that, like there's yeah. people's stories that were lost. Yeah. When they were the perpetrator, just simply because. Yeah. They happened to be gay, too. Yep. And that's real. Because. Yeah. That amount of followers is. Insane. Astronomical insane yeah and he he wasn't a good guy no but like how he managed to convince six million people apparently yeah so that is the story of prophet jones which brings us to Mm -hmm. 1965 okay 
mm-hmm. Escape Lounge, which later become known as Backstreet, opened. Backstreet, back. All right. Which is crazy to think that Backstreet opened in 1965. Cause I'm still, I think they're still around. I don't know if it's oh, still okay. the original building. That is really, I mean, like, the, that's a long time for a bar. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So now we're in 1967, which is not a great year for Wayne State's reputation. Rot row. They were both caught and charged for putting cameras into university restrooms to try and capture homosexual activity. Oh, no. And I'm guessing as part of the backlash to that, they agreed to destroy the files they had on suspected homosexuals. Basically, they were building files on suspected homosexuals. Yeah. And then they had to destroy them. That's very problematic. It sure is. Uh, So 1968, Michigan repeals the criminal sexual psychopath law that was mentioned earlier. The one that kind of just allowed you to institutionalize gays or alleged gays or... Someone who winked at a man once. Mm-hmm. Like, like that one guy who... 31 years. Yeah. Yeah. 1969, Cedar Point was a lot more inclusive than I thought. So in 1969, okay. they had a flyer out advertising a gay day at Cedar Point on June 14th. Oh. They're like June 14th for the gays. Interesting. Yeah. Which is interesting because like that's... Like my family, we always used to go to Cedar Point in June and sometimes it would line up with that. And my parents mm-hmm. would always be like, I don't know what's going on. And now <laughs> I know it was gay day. That is fun. Yeah. Good on you, Cedar Point. Right? So in 1970, unless maybe they didn't organize mm-hmm. it and like someone just put a flyer out because that also is very likely possible. Oh, like people just went. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was just a flyer. I couldn't mm-hmm. tell if it was official or not. But And for anybody not in the Midwest, because there's a few of you out there. Yeah. We know. Cedar Point is a big amusement park. Like, think Six Flags, but a bit more local to the Midwest. Because, like, they have some other, other, like, locations than just Cedar Point, this company. So Cedar Fair is... Nobody cares about... Nobody <laughs> cares about theme arc history, but also... <laughs> no, I but it is watching, interesting. Well, no, I, like, literally before you came over, was watching this video of the 10 longest roller coasters by this YouTube channel that theme park crazy... Uh-huh. And it cracks my shit up because, like, <laughs> I'm bo- interested in what he's saying, but it's also mm-hmm. just like this guy who you can tell is just endearingly nerdy and just loves <laughs> roller coasters. And that's part of the reason why I love YouTube because you'll just yeah. find people that are just like people doing so their passionate thing. about something yeah. so niche and it's just mm-hmm. fun to watch. Well, but one thing too I want to mention about Cedar Point is like they've had record breaking roller coasters. Oh, yeah. I don't know if they have Millennium Force is the sixth longest roller coaster in the world. Okay. Yeah. They had like in uh, It was the tallest and like the it was like one of the it was the first giga coaster in the okay. world. And I know Blue Streak was like a record for something at yeah. one point. It just got and some landmark status. Was, yeah. Yeah. Oh, the Magnum Street. when it first opened was I a think big deal. one of the biggest hills or something. Yeah. Yeah. They got some stuff. Yeah. I haven't been there in a long time, but they got some stuff. Yeah. I like I used to go like every year and then I started going multiple times a year and now I'm just never going. I would go again. I, I would not oppose it again, but it's never like, I'm never going to be the one that's going to suggest it. Same. Same. And I probably wouldn't want to go on a weekend. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'd be like, oh, are we going Let's on a go Tuesday? Let's go on a Tuesday. Yeah. yeah. Leah, love a good weekday mm-hmm. Cedar Point trip. The best is when it storms in the morning and the park clears out. But then yeah. it's like nice enough by like 11 or noon to go back in. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. Because then there's no lines. Mm-hmm. Uh. But getting yes. back to this timeline. Yeah. Away from the side journey. Yes. I do love Cedar Point, though. Yeah. 
1970, the Detroit Gay Liberation Front is formed. Um, the Gay Liberation Front, known for their militant gay activism. And it was a series of groups founded across the US, UK, and Canada. Oh. So it was like a movement in all three of those. Okay. And they were a direct result of the 1969 Stonewall riots, which mm-hmm. I have a little side journey on that. Did not happen anywhere near Detroit, but just a little history. Yeah. The Stonewall Inn was a bar on Christopher Street in New York and was well known as a gay bar at the time. This meant that their existence was plagued by police raids and payoffs to dirty cops and organized crime orgs just to stay in business. It was the night of June 28, 1969, and the cops had tried to do a raid on Stonewall, but the patrons had decided they had had it officially. They started to throw coins, bottles, and rocks at the cops. They also freed the staff from the police vans because the staff had gotten arrested for serving or something. Mm-hmm. And it got to the point where the cops ended up barricaded in the bar, clearly outnumbered by the LGBT crowd fighting them. And the crowd was outside using a parking meter as a battering ram trying to get back at them. <laughs> so basically, it was just like the night when gays were like, we fucking we're had it. Yeah. Like, we're not putting up with this bullshit anymore. Yeah. And these kind of like these riots kind of went on for multiple nights. The tactical patrol force, which were... Originally called in for things like war protests were brought in to try and control the mob, but the LGBT crowd did not let up. They instead started to throw rocks at the cops while yelling gay power, dancing and taunting their opposition. Like I mentioned, this would continue for a couple of nights with the LGBT crowd growing each night. And they got more organized and started handing out leaflets and rallying around and thus the gay liberation movement was on. Mm -hmm. And this is why Pride Month is held in June and why there's still Pride marches to this day. Kind of commemorate this uprising that happened. Yeah. Yeah. So pride is not just an excuse for companies to slap rainbows on things. There is an (laughs) actual story. They're using it a lot. Oh my God. They sure are. That. (laughs) Which, like, it's great. They're trying to put rainbows on things, but also Mm. be cognizant to see if, like, any of that money is actually going to a gay organization because otherwise you're just lining their pockets for them slapping rainbows on shit. Oh, yeah, Which isn't yeah, yeah. necessarily a bad thing because it's nice mm-hmm. that they're putting this stuff out there, but it's better if you can find something that actually supports, supports something, yeah. a cause for the community. Yeah, it's not problematic necessarily to get it without that, but, right. yeah. but if, if... It's more meaningful if yeah. you can find, like, mm-hmm. if they're actually giving something instead of just like, well, here's Rainbow, like... Yeah, yeah, doing something... Yeah. Me- doing something meaningful. Yeah. Versus just doing it for profit. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. That's the difference is. Right. Is there meaning attached to it or is it for profit? Right. Or is it Burger King Austria where they're just had the equality burger that's just oh, it's two Austria. top buns. Okay. I was like, I don't think it was here, but. Yeah, no, I'm yeah. pretty sure it was Austria, which makes me think it probably wasn't just Austria and probably like that part of Europe, but yeah, they had the equality Whopper, the equality burger that was just either two top buns or two bottom buns, which is so <laughs> stupid. Like, like you should have just done nothing because, like, mm-hmm. now everyone's just confused. Mm-hmm. And, like, also, like, what's the point of having two tops and two bottoms? Well, I sent you that picture, too, of that sandwich, that prepackaged oh sandwich. God. It was, like, LGBT sandwich. And it was, like, what? Like, lettuce. Le- the G was guacamole or Gua- something. Yeah, like, lettuce, guacamole, bacon. Tomato. Tomato or something. It was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And those profits were not going. They were no. going to that company. Oh, <laughs> like, absolutely. It was like, 
you're really stretching They're like, it we're here. just using these letters to make a sandwich. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, no, no. Yeah. Okay. I was right in thinking that was really bad because yeah. I was like, I hate this. It's so dumb. It's again, it's kind of just like, just don't do anything if this is your, if this is your plan, just don't do anything because this is honestly just kind of stupid and insulting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean. Like, you didn't try at all. Yeah, for sure. I was joking that the, like the level of gay input they had on that is one of the employees had seen the birdcage on a plane once. <laughs> that was their level of LGBT <laughs> like, thought. I love Robin Williams. <laughs> right, right. So now it's 1971 and gay groups from all around the state march on Lansing. Uh, also, the Grand Valley Gay Alliance holds public pit sessions that boasted a, quote, real life homosexual. <laughs> Um, what's a pit session pit session i don't really know either i'm kind of imagining is just kind of like meeting on the quad or something in a circle somewhere yeah i like couldn't really or maybe they went mosh pit maybe they played like some raging music and moshed around you know those those early 70 mosh pits yeah uh in 1972 ann arbor celebrates its first official gay pride week also in 1972, on the Detroit ballot was a new city charter that included provisions to prevent, protect citizens from discrimination on the basis of sexual preference. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it was voted down. Uh, the city, however, was able to open their first gay community center during the Christopher Street celebrations, which is another name for pride or the early name for pride. And mm-hmm. still, I think, was used in Germany because when I was there, they called it the Christopher Street Days or something like that. Oh, okay. And it was also the first Pride March was held in Detroit this year in 1972. Okay. And they also, in this year, there was an attempt made to repeal the Michigan sodomy law, but was unsuccessful. Ann Arbor and East Lansing become the first cities in the nation to pass LGBT discrimination policies, which I think is really cool. Mm-hmm. 1973, homosexuality is removed from the DSM as a mental disorder. Thank God. Yep. Because if you didn't know until then, uh, homosexuality was in the basically the mental health dictionary as some kind of illness yeah. that you were diagnosed with. That's not okay. Yeah. In 1973, Gay Radio Collective begins Gaily Speaking, which is a <laughs> weekly program on WDET in Detroit. Awesome. Yep. I love that name, Gaily Speaking. Mm-hmm. I love a pun. Yeah. Mm. Uh, in 1973 as well, one year after officially having a gay pride week, the Ann Arbor City Council is overtaken by Republicans who rescind their endorsement of the event. Oh, great. Yeah. And last out for 1973, uh, the Detroit City Charter with sexual orientation provisions is back on the ballot and passes this time. Mm-hmm. 1974, two iconic Detroit gay establishments open, one of those being Gold Coast Saloon on East Seven Mile. And then Menjo's opened in 1974 in their original location on West McNichols. Yeah. Been there? Yeah. So 1975, the Association of Suburban People is formed in the Burbs, which was another gay rights organization, which like the intent was to make suburban areas more safe for gay people. Okay. Because like at the time it was like, oh, the gays go to the city. That's that's their territory. That's where they go. Right. 
and like kind of like stay the fuck out of the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And so this organization was like, no, 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 no. Mm-mm. 1976, state police start a campaign against homosexual activity at rest stops on I-75 and I-96. And I have another crazy story for you that's going to close out the end of part two. Okay. Have you heard the name James Dallas Egbert III before? No, but again, what a name. Right? So in 1979, James Dallas Egbert III disappears in an MSU steam tunnel. Oh, no. Yeah. So James Dallas Egbert, I'm just going to call him Egbert now. Uh, Egbert was another gay prodigy like Leopold and Loeb. Okay. Kind of vibe, Mm -hmm. but not murder. You know, I have a Leopold and Loeb update that I will get to when you're done with your story. Okay. Yeah. Come back to it. Okay. So he was such a prodigy. He entered MSU at the age of 16 to study computer science, which is 1979. So it's early computer days. Yeah. Uh, So a lot of the room. Right. So along with being a prodigy, Egbert was also suffering from depression, loneliness, parental pressure, drug addiction, and the difficulty of coming to terms with his sexuality. Mm -hmm. On August 15th, 1979, Egbert left a suicide note in his dorm and then disappeared into an MSU steam tunnel where he attempted to overdose on quaaludes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Waking up the next day, he realized he was unsuccessful and went into hiding at a friend's house. In the meantime, his parents had hired a private investigator named William Deere to find their son. Mm-hmm. And now I should mention that Egbert was a big fan of D&D and <gasps> other fantasy tabletop games. Me too. Yes. Something that was relatively new at the time and most people did not know anything about, including Deere, the detective. Mm-hmm. The detective had theorized that one possible explanation was that his disappearance had something to do with this D&D thing. Mm. It's so funny. Right? Like, it sounds Uh, crazy, but I guess it was reported that students would sometimes play live action sessions in the steam tunnels at MSU. Okay. So Egbert continues to elude being found by changing houses twice in East Lansing before catching a bus to New Orleans. In New Orleans, Egbert made another attempt on his life by ingesting a cyanide compound, but again was unsuccessful. Mm. He then moved to Morgan City, Louisiana, where he got a job as a roused about which is like some kind of carny yeah and four days after that though he was like he called the detective and gave his location and he was recovered by his uncle soon after okay unfortunately one year and one day after his first suicide attempt egbert would try again and would be successful with a self-inflicted gunshot wound oh the unintended outcome of this ordeal, though, is launching the relatively unknown game of D&D to the national spotlight. But in the way of early video games, people were not here for it. Well, no, it was part of like satanic panic. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially, in this case, mm-hmm. had like a big role in that. The, the, the newer Stranger Things. Yeah. Uh, goes into it. Goes into that a bit, too. Yeah. That's for fine. sure. Oh, yeah. But so like this case, among others, brought the idea that people could become so frenzied while playing the game, especially Mm -hmm. the live action style, as the students once did at MSU, that they would lose touch of reality. Mm -hmm. And the public was both (laughs) at 
both very uneasy and also very much buying more D&D stuff than ever. So it kind of exploded the popularity. Why does nerd shit scare people? <laughs> because they like can't imagine just imagination things. And they're just like, they must really believe this is real. It's like, no, they're just suspending disbelief for this game. It's yeah, fine. Yeah, because it's fun. Right. Also, Egbert's story was an inspiration for a fictionalized book that was later adapted for a TV movie called Mazes and Monsters. Love it. Yep. I think it's been do like an Easter egg. Do you know who is starring in the made-for-TV movie? I do not. Is this the one that you're... Th- no, oh. it's not. But I just... You gotta know now? Some, yes, because sometimes it's really funny who is... Um, yeah. Okay. I'm bringing it up right now. Okay. The movie starred a 26-year-old Tom Hanks in his first leading film role. No way. Yes. That is crazy. Wait, we were going to watch this because... Oh, absolutely. Just from the, the cover picture alone, that the poster. Does it look fantastic? I am already in. Um, uh-huh. Let's see. There's also... Let me see if there's anybody else of, of note. There's some people who look like familiar, but I couldn't tell you what they, else they were in. Yeah. We'll put it like that, but Tom Hanks. Glad I looked. Yes. So funny. Yes. What a coincidence. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of part two. I love it. Oh, and you ended with some D&D for me. Yep. What was your update for yes. so Leopold Loeb? I was talking with somebody about that. Yeah. And there, you mentioned that there was like a number of movies yeah, and, books yeah. and stuff like that inspired. So this is not a like you missed one. No. But yeah. this is kind of a fun one. The 2002 American psychological thriller Murder by Numbers uh-huh. starring Miss Sandra Bullock, Ben Chaplin, and Ryan Gosling uh-huh. was this was the, uh, that story was an inspiration for it. So yeah. basically it's loosely based on it, uh-huh. but it's the perfect, mur- you know, let's commit the perfect murder yeah. kind of taken from that case. And it even says that like on the Wikipedia page that it was loosely based on it. And the film was actually screened at the 2002 Cannes Film Festival, but it was not entered in competition. Uh-huh. But yeah, so just like another movie inspired yeah. by it. And uh, I had Sandra Bullock on the mind because I watched the new Sandra Bullock. Not new, but the newest. Lost City? Yes. I- I've watched it too. I It was fine. It was what it needed to be. Absolutely. I loved it because I didn't expect much from it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it was very unrealistic. You know exactly what's about to happen right. when it's going to happen and like they but that's what that movie should be absolutely you know it shouldn't be like a thoughtful and daniel radcliffe is great as the villain oh my gosh he was so good as the villain right like i love that he got to play that role like that i mean he's had a very wide span of roles at this yes. point because he does choose some like kind of um more avant-garde things sometimes too. He picks them out their movies and I like that he does that. Mm-hmm. Like, Well, there's that one movie where he plays a dead guy the whole time. Yeah, Swiss Army Man. Yes, the yeah. movie's really good, but so bizarre. Yeah. But I enjoyed it thoroughly while I was watching it because it was so... Yeah. Its own thing. I really liked... He played Allen Ginsberg in a movie called yeah. Kill Your Darlings. I haven't seen it, but I remember reading it was that a, that was happening. I've seen it twice and I, I enjoyed it both times. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's him and Dane DeHaan, which I really mm. do like Dane DeHaan as well. Okay, I don't know who that is. Um, he's been in a lot of like, I'm trying to think of something that you would have seen him in. I just recently watched him in a movie where he played Jimmy Dean or James Dean. 
Jim, Jimmy Dean. Dean, the Jimmy sausage Dean. guy. No, James Dean. <laughs> like, are they? They're not the same. They're person. not the same person. James Dean was definitely a. Actor. They called him Jimmy though. Jimmy Dean makes sausage. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Breakfast sausage specifically. Yeah. Oh yeah. I've had the sausage before. It's it's pretty good for like an at home sausage. Yeah. I didn't know that James Dean died so like quickly when he started his movie career. Like he only like made it like 18 months. Like, oh, I didn't know it was that quick. I mean, I knew he died young. Yeah. Like I knew he was like on that list of like. Yeah. Uh, actors who died young. Yeah. But yeah, I didn't know. Wow. Wow. He, re- he it was a, a very interesting movie. Flash. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, like, he made such a big impact, but like. Mm-hmm. And this whole movie was like kind of about like the Life magazine photographer who kind of made that happen because he just kind of became like a little obsessed with Jimmy Dean or James Dean. <laughs> I know it's like hard because they, they called him Jimmy so much in the movie. Yeah, because like, so he was Jimmy Dean, but like right. not but that Jimmy his Dean. but his name to the public was James. Yeah, Dean because it does sound much like swarthier. Yeah, got more of a hot guyness to it. Yeah. Will you remind me to watch that? Because I do want to watch that. Yeah. Put it back on my radar. Because I remember, again, reading about it and being like, ooh, and then yeah. forgetting about it completely. No, it's definitely an interesting one because it's like very thrillery and kind of like murders and stuff. And yeah. Yeah. No, I highly recommend. I think okay. you would enjoy it. Okay. Well, that was a fantastic part two. Yeah. My brain is reeling right now still from the 6 million followers. Uh, right? It's and then insane. Also, my excitement over anything D&D related lately, apparently. Yeah. Which I'm not. I've only played a little bit. I'm not even yeah. well-versed, we'll say. It's just it was so much fun the times I have. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, so thank you for bringing such a, a wide variety. Yeah. I'm excited for next week already. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, you want to switch gears a little bit? Absolutely. Play a little two truths and a lie? Yeah. Okay. So, head to the old mental floss. And I'm going to tell you about cursed books. Okay. <laughs> Supposedly cursed books. So, yeah. I'm going to read you like the names, like the, you know, object names, I guess. I don't know how you would say it, but the names of these books. Yeah. Because uh, not... You'll know why, but they're not all necessarily published yeah. books. And I want you to tell me which one's not. Okay. So book number one, The Diary of Thomas Busby. Okay. Book number two, Codex Gigas, a.k.a. The Devil's Bible. Okay. Book number three, The Grand Grimoire. Ooh, Okay. Hmm. Go with the first one. Damn it. The first one is the lie. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, but it's actually a chair. It okay. is a cursed chair. So it's popularly known, and I, I've heard of it a little bit, but it's it's mostly known as the Busby Stoop Chair. Uh-huh. And it's cursed by the spirit of Thomas Busby, who was uh-huh. known to ruthlessly murder people. Fun. Before he was hung for his crimes, he requested to have a meal in his favorite local pub. When he finished, he stood and said, quote, May sudden death come to anyone who dares sit on my chair. And ever since then, 63 people who have dared to sit on the chair met ultimately in terrifying deaths. Shit. Mm-hmm. So afterwards, or later, the owner of the pub donated the chair to the Thirsk Museum in the UK, uh-huh. where it still hangs about 1.5 meters, because this is 
the UK yeah. off the ground to prevent any further death. Yeah. Isn't that wild? That is wild. So the other two are uh, accurate. So we'll start with the Codex Gigas, which basically means translates from Latin to big book. Uh-huh. Like I said, otherwise known as the Devil's Bible. And it weighs 165 pounds and is three feet in height and about 800 years old. And it's thought to be the world's largest surviving medieval manuscript. Wow. And its exact origins are kind of, we don't know for sure, but many historians believe it was written between 1204 and 1230 in the kingdom of Bohemia. Okay. uh, Which is the Czech Republic today. Yeah. um, Also part of my lineage. Uh Uh-huh. And it was in Latin and it contains both Old Testament, New Testament, along with Czech and Jewish history texts and encyclopedia with information on geometry legal matters and entertainment uh-huh. and other topics here and there, uh, including medical treatises, treatises. Is that how you say it? That sounds right to me. Yeah. Hundreds of obituaries, several magical spells and a calendar. Uh-huh. And its reputation is because there's a full color portrait of the devil contained in its pages. Uh-huh. And there's a legend about how the image got there. So according to legend, the book was made by a monk. Possibly Hermanus Heramitus or Herman the Recluse. Uh-huh. And he had broken his vows and been sentenced to be walled up alive in the monastery. Uh-huh. So he struck a deal to save himself. Who did he struck a deal, strike a deal with? The devil, of course. Yeah, of course. And basically the deal was over the course of one night, if he could write a book containing all the world's knowledge, he'd be spared. Uh-huh. Because he had already kind of put that task on himself, but then he realized that was impossible. So he sold his soul to the devil to yeah. be able to do so. And the devil helped him finish it and signed it with a now infamous portrait, uh-huh. this page. There's other versions too that say the monk added the illustration as a gesture of gratitude for Satan's assistance. Yeah. There are several tales of misfortune attached to this book, but the curse seems to be kind of um, a little tamer than you would expect considering. Satan helped write it, supposedly. And one led, but one legend dates back to at least uh, 1858. And the story goes that a guard was institutionalized after being accidentally locked in Sweden's National Library overnight. And he was supposedly found under the table the next morning, claiming to have seen the book join a procession of books as they danced through the air. (laughs) So that's the big, like, yeah, with that one. Uh, The other one, the Grand Grimoire. In the 1898 text, The Book of Black Magic and Pact, British occultist and scholar Arthur Edward Waite identifies the Grand Grimoire. And he identifies it as one of the four specific and undisguised handbooks of black magic. Uh-huh. The book contains detailed instructions for how to get Satan's right hand man. We're going to try this name Lucifuge Rofocal. <laughs> Sure. And according to historian Owen Davies, the Grand Grimoire is from about 1702. But it's more likely that it made its debut around 1750. Mm-hmm. And it became a publishing sensation. Like, everybody loved it. The popularity is probably what led to people kind of thinking it's cursed because yeah. it just, you know, exploded. In France, it was one of several spell books that were widely distributed in sold in bookstores in the 19th century. Uh-huh. And church officials, of course, were scared of that. Absolutely. Because it threatened their positions. Yep. And they went on a campaign to basically like vilify Mm -hmm. the text. So people began to view the book 
as sinister. There's yeah. no like specific this has happened, but if you buy it, danger will follow kind of a vibe yeah. with that one. So there's a few other really fun nuggets in here. There's one called the Book of Soiga. Okay. And it's also known as the Aldaria Siv Soiga Vakor. Why am I trying all this Latin today? I do not know. But it's an occult text that dates to at least the 1500s. Uh-huh. And it was once owned by John Dee, a famous 16th century polymath whose field of study and expertise in- included mathematics, physics, chemistry, and astronomy. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And he was also an occultist and he was interested in communicating with angels. So the Book of Soiga was irresistible to him because it was basically magical spells and writings about demonology and astrology. And the text includes the names and genealogies of angels. Uh-huh. And it's ac- it includes 36 cryptic tables that remi- remain undeciphered for centuries. Uh-huh. So D attempted to crack their code with the help of Edward Kelly, a crystal gazer who convinced D he could channel the voices of angels. Kelly sometimes spelled his name differently, or he went by a completely different name of Edward Talbot because having aliases was probably pretty helpful to him being a medium because he also was reported of counterfeiting and possibly uh, had his ears cut off as punishment for counterfeiting. Dang. And Dee was very eager to talk to the angels that when Kelly told him the angels wanted the two men to swap wives for an evening as payment for celestial communication, Dee said, sign me up. Nine months later, Theodore Dee was born. Using this medium as a go-between, Dee called upon the archangel Uriel and asked him in the book of Soiga, if the book of Soiga was the real deal, Uriel speaking through this man, Kelly, said, yep, 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 yep. And he told him that only the archangel Michael was authorized to translate those special cryptic tables. Yeah. But Michael wasn't available. <laughs> He's not available right now. I think no. a message. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At one point, D mentioned to Uriel, they, he'd been told he'd die within two and a half years if he ever read the encoded text. Uh-huh. And Uriel assured D he'd live for more than a hundred years. Uh-huh. Because that makes sense. Oh, yeah. And... There are a few things that have happened. So D died in 1608 at the age of 81. So not exactly 100 years. Yeah. And the book itself actually changed hands a couple of times before vanishing from record. Uh-huh. Fast forward 300 years, summer of 1994. Deborah Harkness had just finished her doctoral dissertation called John D's Conversation with Angels. Yeah. And was browsing through a catalog at Oxford's library where she found a reference to the book. Yeah. She had the book brought up and soon found herself staring at the Holy Grail in her work. And the experience inspired a novel called A Discovery of Witches, which kicked off a best-selling trilogy and has been adapted for television. Oh, fun. Mm -hmm. In 1998. Siri, nobody asked you. It did find that book, though. Uh, (laughs) 1998, mathematician Jim Reeds cracked the code of the mysterious tables. He... um, Decipher the tables and they each turned out to be based on a six letter code word. We still don't know the meanings, though, or what the message the tables were meant to communicate. Uh So, like, he cracked, like, how they did it, but not necessarily the. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, As for the curse, it appears to have been a dud. Okay. So there's one called the Great Omar. Uh Uh-huh. And it was a custom-made edition of a collection of quatrains by 11th century Persian poet Omar 
Piam. And he became known in the West after writer Edward Fitzgerald translated some of his verse in 1859. And the book, nothing happened until basically 1911. And a bookbinder put the finishing touches on an elaborate new edition of it. And because he was given an unlimited budget and only two mandates, the final product could be worth whatever price he decided on and that it be the greatest modern binding in the world. Uh-huh. To get design elements correct, he borrowed a human skull for reference and bribed a zookeeper to feed a live rat to a snake so he could see the angles of his jaw. He used 100 square feet of gold leaf, 5,000 pieces of leather, and more than 1,000 precious gemstones. But once it was finished, the, com- the bookshop, which priced it at 8,000 pounds, so about $150,000, U.S. Wow. Yep. Had trouble selling it. Yeah, I yeah. can't imagine why. Yeah. So they tried to sell it in America, but um, the customs officer sent the book back to London, and it finally sold at auction to an American buyer for less than half the original asking price. Uh-huh. And it got a ride across the Atlantic on the Titanic. Did it actually make it, or did it sink? It was never recovered from the wreckage of the Titanic. But it was recreated in the 1930s, usually in the original plans. But here's the, another wild thing. Uh, Ten weeks after that happened, the guy who had made this, who had yeah. you know, designed it, all that, drowned while on vacation at 37 years old. Weird. Uh-huh. So a new edition was created based uh, on, you know, the original plans. And it was finished by a bookbinder named Stanley Bray just after World War II, or we. Yeah. <laughs> And it was to protect it from the German bombs. It was placed in a vault on London's Fourth Street. Uh-huh. And it ended up being one of the first sites targeted by Nazi planes. Wow. Mm-hmm. The safe held the book survived, uh-huh. but the book didn't. Temperatures inside rose so high that the leather and paper components were melted and charred. Dang. Mm-hmm. So Bray, the, the person who had made that copy of it, he spent more than 4,000 hours over 40 years creating a third edition. Uh-huh. And it might have escaped its little curse. Yeah. Bray lived to be 88 years old. And the third one is now in the British Library. Okay. Some people think it was like the bejeweled peacocks on the cover. I, yeah. But who knows? But there are some, pe- some cultures believe peacock feathers bring bad luck. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and the last one is Tomino's Hell. And it is from 1919. It was included uh, in Sakin, a book of poems by Japanese poet and songwriter. Dayo Yaso. Yeah. Uh, the poem seems to recount a young boy's journey through hell. I like Dante. Um, yeah. It's been speculated that Tamino has committed an unforgivable sin and has been damned to hell. But according to the folklorist and translator, Tara A. Devlin, Western readers are missing some important context clues and cultural references. It's what yeah, happens yeah. with translation sometimes. And it's more likely an allegory for a young man's deployment to the battlefield, which Interesting. I can see how that can yeah. be like hell, um, where he may have been killed in action. Yeah. The poem's long journey to creepy pasta stardom. Oh, fun. Yes. May have started in 1974 when it helped inspire a film called Pastoral to Die in the Country uh, by filmmaker Suji Teriyama. And Suji lived for nine years after he made the movie, but then there was legend that blamed his 1983 death on Tomino's Howl. Basically, it was probably liver disease, but at some point, rumors began to go around about a college student who had supposedly died after reading the poem. 
Uh-huh. So in 2004, when an author and film critic, uh, Yomata Inuhiko, reportedly wrote, quote, if you by chance happen to read Tomino's Hall out loud, you will suffer from a terrible fate which cannot be escaped. Uh-huh. Enter the internet, enter yeah. creepypasta, and it's passed around. Uh-huh. That's how an urban legend is born. We all know it. Yeah. It's gained more traction in the West because of translation. Yeah. And the the writers of the article that yeah. I got this information from did contact some um people in Japan, like folklore, yeah. uh, you know, experts and things like that. And neither could shed light on why people think that about this. Yeah. But it probably originated in the West basically by like misunderstandings and things like that. Makes uh, sense. And the internet. So yeah. probably not actually cursed, but you know, people are going to think what they want to think. Right. People claim to feel ill while reading it, uh-huh. but also there's always the power of suggestion. Oh, absolutely. And that's um, a short little bit on some possible cursed pieces of literature. Yeah. I don't know. The idea of cursed objects just it fascinates is interesting. me. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure we're wrapped up like the end of a curse. We are wrapped up like one of those books uh-huh. in a library somewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you want to contact us, you can contact us at DetroitStrange at gmail.com or you can find us on Instagram, Detroit Strange, and Facebook. And Twitter. And Twitter. Yeah. Yes, because we tweet so often. Yes. And if you want to support the show, you can give us a review on any platform you can give a review on, preferably five stars. We have our Threadless and our Patreon. If you want some either digital goodies or physical goodies, we got stuff there. Mm-hmm. And I think until next time, stay, stay strange. This has been a production of Planet Ant Podcast, powered by Pinecast. Our theme song was recorded by Detroit's own Sax and Violence.